My dear audience, I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. I want to thank all of those of you who wrote emails to me, and thank you very much uh, to those who wrote good wishes for New Year and all your kind words. If you don't have my email yet, uh, here it is. It's Dr. Peter Resnick at gmail.com, G-E-G-R-P-E-T-E-R-R-E-Z-N-I-K at gmail.com. Ladies and gentlemen, today I have a very, very special guest. I must tell you, I feel very excited, excited about having this, this particular man with us today. I feel as if I have this favorite professor uh, that I know for years and years, and suddenly I have him for an interview. And indeed, I have been following this uh, person's journeys ever since I read his first book in 1990. Uh, the last time, honestly, I was so as excited when, was when I invited, if you remember, Wim Hof to this show, not a health pr practitioner formally. Remember, this is a man who ran uh, a marathon in the Arctic Circle, barefoot, in his shorts. I invited him not because he did this super phenomenon. Many people do super things. Somebody eats uh, 10 pounds of sausages. That's also phenomenal. I invited him because he demonstrated that human boundaries, human limitations can be moved further. What people thought was impossible became possible. And not only he himself was able to go way beyond what people thought was possible, but as you know, he taught hundreds of thousands hello. to do the same. Hello, hello. Hi. Hi. Can you see me? Oops, hold on. Yes. And today, ladies and gentlemen, I have uh, a very special guest who demonstrated, just like Wim Hof with his exposure to cold, demonstrated that something that thought to be impossible actually was possible. Till Dean Ornish, coronary artery disease, was believed to be irreversible. That was an established fact. You give a patient medication and this is it. And Dean Ornish, Dr. Dean Ornish, dared to challenge uh, that established fact. Let me tell you a little bit about Dean Ornish till I uh, offer him the microphone. Dean Ornish, MD, is a founder and president of a nonprofit preventive medicine research institute and clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco and clinical professor of medicine at the University of California, San Diego. Dr. Ornish was recognized by Time magazine as a Time 100 inventor, by Life magazine as one of 50 most influential members of his generation, by People's magazine as one of the most interesting people of the year, and by Forbes magazine as one of the world's seven most powerful teachers. Is the author of seven books, all national bestsellers. For 40 years, he has directed 
clinical research demonstrating for the first time, I have to say, for the first time in our modern times, uh, because in old times they thought differently, pretty much the way Dean Ornish is thinking today. So he demonstrated for the first time uh, in the times of our conventional medicine that comprehensive lifestyle changes may begin to reverse even severe coronary heart disease without drugs or surgery. In fact, Medicare created a new benefit category uh, called intensive cardiac rehabilitation to provide coverage to his problem. He directed the first randomized controlled trial demonstrating comprehensive lifestyle changes may slow, stop, or reverse progression of early, uh, <coughs> excuse me, early stage cancer, uh, prostate cancer. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, <coughs> excuse me, I have actually two pages. <coughs> excuse me. Two pages of uh, information about all the accomplishments of Dr. Ornish, but I'm so eager to introduce him to you. By the way, President Obama has appointed Dr. Ornish to a White House advisory group on prevention, health promotion, and public health. So without further delay, ladies and gentlemen, I want to introduce to you Dr. Dean Ornish. Welcome, Dr. Ornish. I'm uh, so grateful to you that you found time to be with us today. Oh, well, right back at you. Thank you, Peter, for this kind introduction and the opportunity to uh, share what we've been learning with your listeners and hope that it may help empower them as we move into the new year. You know, thank you. I have to tell you, uh, your book, uh, Love and Survival, is on the list of 21 books that I give um, on the reading list for my students already for years and years. And I've been following your work, as I said before you joined us, for since 1990 when I read your first book. So it's really a privilege for me to have you at this oh, show. Well, thank you so much. And uh, the newest book, uh, Undo It, that I wrote with my wife, Anne, who has uh, been my colleague for over 20 years, uh, comes out today in paperback. Uh, it's called Undo It, and it shows how these simple lifestyle changes can reverse so many different chronic diseases. Um, excuse me just one second. I just want to close the door here. Keep it quiet. There we go. Um, you know, I was trained like so many doctors to view heart disease and type 2 diabetes and prostate cancer and Alzheimer's and high blood pressure and high cholesterol as being fundamentally different diseases, different diagnoses and different treatments. And yet we found over the four decades of doing research that you mentioned briefly, that these same lifestyle changes could often stop or even reverse the progression of all of these different conditions. Um, and I wondered, well, why is that with all this interest in personalized medicine? And what I realized is that, and it may seem obvious, but uh, no one had really put it together quite like this. So I put this unifying theory together in the uh, book, which basically says that, um, I was trained to view them as always different diseases, different diagnoses, and different treatments. And yet, uh, I really think they're the same disease. They have more in common than they have different. And then in many respects, they're the same disease masquerading and, and uh, manifesting in different forms because they all share the same underlying biological mechanisms, things like chronic inflammation, oxidative stress, um, changes in 
in uh, gene expression and telomeres and angiogenesis and so on. And each of these mechanisms in turn is directly influenced by what we eat, how we respond to stress, how much exercise we get, and how much love and support we have. And the more, the more diseases we look at, the more uh, evidence we have to show what a simple, what a powerful difference these simple changes in diet and lifestyle can make. You know, I, I, um, I guess the biggest obstacle I find, and I imagine you do as well, is that people think, oh, diet and lifestyle, that's kind of boring. How powerful could that be? You know, it has to be a new drug, a new laser, something really high-tech and expensive. And I think our unique contribution has been to use these very high-tech, expensive, state-of-the-art scientific measures to prove how powerful these very simple and low-tech and low-cost, and as you indicated, even ancient interventions can be. So in a series of studies, we found that these same lifestyle changes could reverse, uh, stop or reverse the progression of, of virtually all of these conditions. And I think that really, as we move into the new year, where people are looking to say, gosh, you know, maybe I can do things differently than I have before. Uh, you know, when, get, when people get, for example, put on medications to lower their cholesterol or blood pressure or blood sugar, and they say, doctor, how long do I have to take these? The doctor usually says, forever. You know, it's a little like, um, you know, I had this cartoon drawn many years ago of doctors busily mopping up the floor around a sink that's overflowing. How long do I have to mop up the sink? Like forever. Well, why don't we turn off the faucet? And the faucet, the underlying cause, to a much larger degree than once we had once realized, are the lifestyle choices that we make each day. And these underlying biological mechanisms are so dynamic, you can get better quickly and you can get worse quickly depending on what you do. And, you know, many people under their doctor's supervision who were told they'd have to be on drugs to lower their cholesterol, their blood pressure, their blood sugar, and they'd have to take them forever, often in higher and higher doses, were able, under their doctor's care, when they made these lifestyle changes to reduce or in some cases get off of them altogether. And it's very empowering for people to be able to experience that. You know, I, I, as I said, what you're saying is so revolutionary for our times, yet the father of Western medicine, Hippocrates, said, I would rather know what sort of a man has a disease than what sort of a disease a man has. So the person's way of being is even more important, was important for him for understanding the the way of treating the person. So you are you are definitely following footsteps. Some yes, well, he also, Hippocrates also said, let uh, thy food be thy medicine. And I think, again, these are in many ways old ideas that we're rediscovering. Now, you, you I would love, I have questions about this um, book there and do it, but you, you also wrote a wonderful book, I believe it's in 2009, called Spectrum. Mm -hmm. This book, Undo It, is how to, about how to uh, undo the damage that is already done. Mm -hmm. but previous book, the spectrum is about how to live uh, basically a healthy life. Yeah, the spectrum is really more about preventing disease. The undo it book is more about reversing disease. Um, to reverse disease is hard. The reason we were the first to prove that so many of these different chronic diseases that were thought impossible to reverse could in fact be often reversed is because most people didn't go far enough. They didn't change the number. They, you have to change a lot of things at the same time. Eat well, move more, stress less, love more. You know, a whole foods plant-based diet that's low in fat and sugar moderate exercise, meditation, and other stress management techniques, and what we call social support, or spending more time with your friends and family. It's more prescriptive. 
it, you know, it's, because it's hard to, to, to reverse something that's already been there. But if you're just trying to lose a few pounds or stay healthy or get your cholesterol or blood pressure down a few points, what matters most is your overall way of eating and living. So if you indulge yourself one day, it doesn't mean you failed or you cheated or you're bad. Just eat healthier the next. If you don't have time to exercise one day, do a little more the next. If you don't have time to meditate for an hour, do it for a minute. Whatever you do, there's a corresponding benefit. I mean, even the language of behavioral change has this, what I call this kind of fascist, you know, moralistic, uh, shaming, finger-wagging, nurse-ratchet kind of approach. You know, once you call foods good or bad, it's a small step to saying I'm a bad person because I ate bad food or I, I cheated on my diet. The whole language has this kind of judgmental shaming quality to it. And I find that really gets in the way. And, you know, even more than being healthy, people want to feel free and in control. And as soon as I tell somebody, you know, eat this and never eat that and do this and don't do that, these are good foods, these are bad foods, they immediately want to do the opposite. You know, that goes all the way back to the first dietary intervention when God said, don't eat the apple, and that didn't go so well, and that was you know, God talking. So in that book, I categorize foods from the most healthful to the least healthful, group five, the least healthful, group one, the most healthful, and say, start where you are. And how much are you willing to do? Well, I'll, I'll eat a less of the bad stuff, more of the good stuff. Okay, great. Um, let's see how you do. Uh, how much exercise are you willing to do? Um, I'll walk 15 minutes a day. Great. How much meditation and yoga are you doing? Uh, zero. How much are you willing to do? I'll meditate 15 minutes a day. Great. How much time are you spending with your friends and family? Uh, not enough. I'll make that a higher priority. Great. So we'll support it. You know, again, if they... Indulge themselves one day, if they eat something unhealthy, it doesn't mean they failed or they cheated, just eat healthier the next. So it takes away, you can't really fail because there's really no diet as such to get on, so there's no diet to get off. Um, by the way, US News and World Report today announced that what they call the Ornish diet is number one for heart health for the 11th year since they began rating diets 11 years ago in, in, in 2011. So that was a, a nice vote of confidence. But if you're just trying to, again, stay healthy, there isn't a diet as such, just to the degree you move in a healthy direction, you're going to look better, feel better, lose weight, gain health. And then we'll track it for a month. And if after a month, let's say you wanted to lose 10 pounds and you lost five, or you wanted to get your blood pressure down 10 points and it came down six, or you wanted to get your LDL cholesterol down 50 points and it came down 30, you say, wow, look, you're doing great. Now, if you could just eat a little healthier and you know a little more exercise, a little more meditation, a little more time with your loved ones, that'll probably do it. So the Undo It book is really, which just came out today in paperback, is really much more about reversing disease. And I think we're at a place with, um, and it also puts forth, again, this unifying theory that makes it kind of radically simplifies what we recommend. The, the quote, the, begin, the, <laughs> the book begins with a, one of my favorite quotes, which is from Albert Einstein, who says, uh, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it well enough. And so I try to reduce it down to its essence, you know, eat well, move more, stress less, love more. Boom, that's it. And we're now in the midst of doing the first randomized trial to see if these same lifestyle changes may stop or reverse the progression of men and women who have early stage Alzheimer's disease. And it runs in my family. My mom died of it, all of her siblings. I have one of the genes for it. And uh, it's, you know, right now there are no drugs that can even stop it from getting worse, much less improve it. Um, I think we're at a place with Alzheimer's very reminiscent of where we were with heart disease 40 years ago. In other words, the same biological, what, what's good for your heart is good for your brain. The same biological mechanisms that affect your heart affect your brain. Less intensive interventions back then slowed the rate at which your arteries got clogged, but they weren't enough to stop or reverse it. 
we found for the first time, as you mentioned, that we that if you make bigger changes in a lot of things, you can actually reverse the arteries, get less less and less clogged over time instead of more and more clogged that feed the heart. I think we're at a place with Alzheimer's where other studies have shown that less intensive lifestyle changes slow the progression into dementia. Um, my theory is that more intensive ones might stop or reverse it. You know, ounce of prevention, pound of cure, if you will. So we're in the midst of doing that study, if um, you know, we provide everyone in the study 21 meals a week for them and their spouse at no cost, uh, they can live anywhere in the country because we're doing the intervention by Zoom now. So if anyone's listening to this and wants more information about our study or about any of our work, uh, go to uh, ornish.com. And by the way, speaking of Zoom, you know, Medicare created a new benefit category to cover my program for reversing heart disease back um, 11, 12 years ago. And so we've been partnering with ShareCare and training hospitals and clinics and physician groups around the country. And it's working. We're getting <clears throat> bigger changes in lifestyle, better clinical outcomes, larger cost savings, and better adherence than anyone's ever shown. But just a, a month or so ago, Medicare agreed to cover my reversing heart disease program when it's offered by Zoom. So you can now live anywhere in the country. You can live in rural areas, you can live in food deserts, you can live anywhere. You don't have to live within driving distance of one of the hospitals or clinics we've trained. And so now we can help everybody who needs it. And, you know, having seen what a powerful difference this lifestyle program can make in, in reversing uh, people with heart disease, you know, it's really exciting to me. I mean, we, you know, we find that most people who have chest pain uh, become essentially pain-free. Uh, under their doctor's supervision when they go on my reversing heart disease program. That's why Medicare is covering it. Uh, and it's a really, you know, it, it, it reframes the whole reason for change from fear of dying or fear of something bad like a heart attack or stroke from happening to joy and pleasure and love and feeling good, which are really sustainable. You know, if someone who's got chest pain and can't walk across the street without getting chest pain or make love with their spouse or play with their kids or go back to work without pain and within a few weeks they can often do all of those things. And then they say, well, you know, I like eating junk food, but not that much, you know, because I like what I feel is so much better that even if I knew I wouldn't live a day longer, the quality of my life is so much better. And we even have several people who were at such bad heart disease that they were told that only a new heart, a heart transplant, could save their life. And by, they went on this program, and in nine weeks, their heart began to pump so much better, they didn't need a new heart. You know, like, what's the more radical intervention here? <laughs> Cutting your chest open and putting a new heart in it, or eat well, move more, stress less, and love more? Would you describe, you cannot go into great details, but would you describe your program? Just step by step, you do this for reversing heart disease. I have the book, but my audience probably. By the way, my audience is on, on, uh, on, on average is middle-aged people, mm -hmm. which means yeah, yeah, we are the same age. People from the age of probably 40 to 70, 80. So um, it would be probably interesting for any of my listeners to to hear like what what, what does it. It sounds beautiful, wonderful, but what does it entail? Yeah, well, the nice thing about it, it's the same program for all of these different conditions. It's not like there's one diet for reversing heart disease, another one for reversing type 2 diabetes, another one for prostate cancer, et cetera. It's the same for all of them. And again, it goes back to this unifying theory because these are all really the same 
disease just manifesting in different forms. It's why you often find the same person will have what are called comorbidities. They'll have heart disease and type 2 diabetes and high blood pressure and high cholesterol and be overweight and often have prostate cancer and so on because, again, it's just the same disease manifesting in all these different forms. So it's the same treatment to prevent or reverse all of these different conditions. And it's basically a whole foods plant-based diet fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, soy products, as they come in nature, uh, moderate exercise, walking a half an hour a day for an hour three times a week, along with some str uh, strength training, uh, various meditation and other stress management techniques, which can be done either in a religious or a secular way, and spending more time with your friends and family. Uh, you know, study after study, you mentioned the Love and Survival book. Back then, in 1998, when I wrote that, there were you know, hundreds, now there are literally tens of thousands of studies showing that people who are lonely and depressed and isolated are three to 10 times more likely to get sick and die prematurely from pretty much all causes when compared to those who have a sense of love and connection and community. And I don't know anything in medicine that has that powerful an impact, in part because we're more likely to abuse ourselves when we're feeling lonely and depressed. You know, the, you know there's been a radical shift in our culture in the last 50 years with the breakdown of the social networks that used to give people a sense of love and connection and community. You know, 50 years ago, or, you know, or in, in Russia, when before you came here, most people had an extended family they saw regularly. They had a neighborhood with two or three generations of people uh, who lived together and grew up together. They had a job that felt secure. They'd been out for many years and got to know their coworkers. They had a, a church or synagogue or mosque or club or something they went to on a regular basis. But many people today don't have any of those. And we pay a price for that because one of the things that happens when you grow up in a neighborhood with two or three generations of people is that they really know you. They don't just know your Facebook profile and, you know, like the nice things you said about me in the introduction. Uh, you didn't mention I was suicidally depressed when I was in college, you know, or but if someone, if I grew up in the neighborhood, they would know that or they would know the time that someone got busted or arrested or, you know, that something bad happened to them. And you know that they know and they know that you know that they know and they're still there for you. And there's something really primal about being fully seen, you know, and that wonderful uh, film Avatar with James Cameron. Uh, he says, I see you, you know, I see all of you. One of the studies that I cite in my new uh, Undo It book is that the more time you spend on Facebook, the more depressed you are. Uh, but why is that? Because it's not an authentic intimacy. It's a, it's a, it's a fake intimacy in a way. Because it looks like everybody has this perfect life, but you. They're only posting their, the really good things that happen. Here we are in front of the Eiffel Tower, and here's our kids graduating, and whatever. They don't post their doubts, their darkness, their demons, their despair, all of that. And so, in our support groups. What we try to do is to recreate that sense of intimacy and safety and trust, which I think are at the root of healing. Uh, you know, where what goes in the group stays in the group, and someone can talk about what's really going on in their lives without fear that someone's going to judge or reject them or, you know, shame them or give them advice on how to fix it in a glib way and so on. And it's the part of the program that people often have the most mis, mis, uh, you know, questions or even apprehension about. It's like, okay, I get diet and exercise, sure, and even meditation, but love more? I don't, what is that about, you know? And yet, study after study, again, have shown that that sense of loneliness and depression, which I think is the real pandemic in our culture, um, is associated with a three to 10 times increased risk of premature death and disease from all of these different conditions. Now, in part, because, you know, 
when you know I've, I've heard people say things like i've got 20 friends in this pack of cigarettes and they're always there for me and nobody else is you're going to take away my 20 friends what are you going to give me you know or food fills that void or fat coats my nerves and numbs the pain or opioids numb the pain we have an opioid epidemic or too much alcohol numbs the pain we have you know too much people drinking too much alcohol or other drugs or you know video games distract me from my pain or working all the time distracts me from my pain and so i've learned that it's not enough to just give people information and expect everybody to change. If they did, you know, if that were the case, nobody would smoke. It's not like I'd say, hey, Peter, I want you to quit smoking. Did you know it's bad for you? And go, gee, I didn't know that. I'll quit today. It's like everybody knows that. But again, we have to focus on the deeper issues. And for many people, the deeper issues are that sense of loneliness and isolation, which in many ways, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic has only yeah, gotten worse because, you know, we're all sequestered and so on. But, you know, we can do a lot about that. There was a study that was done by Sheldon Cohen, uh, that was in the Journal of the American Medical Association several years ago, and they and they dripped. I don't know how they got people to volunteer for this, but they dripped rhinovirus, the the virus that causes the common cold, and a different variant of COVID into volunteers' noses, and 100% of them, they all got infected, but not everybody who got infected got sick. And they found that those that had six or more phone calls or visits from a friend over a two-week period were four times less likely to get sick than those that had two or fewer visits or phone calls from a friend during that same period. You know, so um, it's not just running, and they were, but they were all infected. So it's, you know, we need to be vaccinated, we need to wear masks, we need to, you know, practice social distancing and so on. But even with that, with the new Omicron variant, 20% of people, even who are triple vaccinated, uh, sometimes get sick. And so we need to also focus on what we can do to boost our own immune system. And there was another study that came out just a few weeks ago. They looked at 3,000 frontline healthcare workers in six different countries, including ours. And they found that those following uh, the healthy plant-based diet that I describe in my uh, Undo It book were 73% less likely to develop moderate to severe COVID than those eating a typical American diet. As, but when but those eating a low-carb, Atkins, paleo, ketogenic-type diet, high animal protein diet, were nearly 400% more likely to develop moderate to severe disease. And then another study that also came out recently, just a month or so ago, looked at almost 600,000 uh, participants in uh, at Harvard and King's College, and they found that those eating a healthful plant-based diet were 41% less likely to develop moderate to severe disease. So in addition to getting vaccinated and wearing masks and social distancing, what we eat and how we respond to stress uh, and the kind of social relationships we have can also make a big difference in keeping us healthy. Okay, if you I have many questions about your books, uh, but I would like to create parenthesis for uh, a few minutes and ask, ask you about Dean Ornish, not Dr. Dean Ornish, but uh, the first question is, how did you come to this fighting the system, meaning thinking differently? Because, because education is pretty uniform, as I understand, in medical schools. What made you think, no, 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 I'm not buying it. <laughs> how did it happen? Well, it, it came out of <clears throat> Pardon me. It came out of my own pain, really. Um, I was suicide depressed when I was a freshman in college and found that these techniques really helped me to um, rediscover inner sources of peace and joy and well-being and to find that um, it really transformed my life. 
Which techniques? The same things, eat well, move more, stress less, love more. I began to uh, rediscover inner sources of peace and joy and well-being. And so I was able to go and function at a much higher level without getting so distressed in the process. And then uh, I was in medical school at uh, the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston and was learning how to do, during my third year of medical school, uh, bypass surgery, coronary bypass surgery um, with uh, Dr. Michael DeBakey, the, who were one of the doctors who actually invented bypass surgery. He was very uh, an old school tyrant kind of guy. Uh, he would stick you with a needle if you didn't move your hands fast enough out of the operating field, that kind of thing. And he'd say, what year are you, son? I'd say, I'm in my, starting my third year, he goes, damn, it's going to be so much harder to bust you out of here with all these weird ideas you have than because you made it this far. Anyway, um, so we'd cut people open, we'd bypass their clogged arteries, he'd tell them they were cured, and then more often than not, they'd go home and do the same things that had caused the problem in the first place, you know, eat junk food and not manage stress and smoke and not exercise, and and more often than not, their new bypasses would clog up and we'd come, they'd come back, we'd cut them open again, sometimes two or three times. So for me, bypass surgery became a metaphor of an incomplete approach. We were literally bypassing the problem without also treating the cause. And so I wondered, well, what would happen if we, you know, again, mopping up the floor without turning off the faucet around the overflowing sink? And I was wondering, well, what would happen if we treated the cause, if we changed the lifestyle factors? And so I went to these things back then they had called libraries and they had these things called books that we people would read and journals. And, and I got really um, kind of obsessive about, you know, just I found it fascinating that in dogs and cats and pigs and rabbits and monkeys, you could cause them to get heart disease if you put them on a, unhealthy diets or made them smoke or put them under stress or didn't let them exercise. And you could reverse it if you change those same things. I said, so why should people be any different? And I said, oh, no, 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 it's impossible. You know, it's just, that's just the way it is. And one of the nice things about being a medical student is you're not fully indoctrinated. So I thought, well, let's try this. So much to my parents' dismay, I took a year off between my second and third years of medical school. Um, uh, the cardiologist, you know, nice things about doing things in Texas is that um, they have this really pioneering ethos. You know, you got this crazy idea, go for it. You won't work, but you'll learn something. So we'll support it, you know. And so the chief of cardiology uh, donated the test for it and the head of medicine donated re referred patients and so on. And I put 10 men and women in a hotel for a month and they got better. Eight of the 10 people actually showed improvement. How, in the old, were of their heart. How old were you? How was I? I was 23 at the time. And you initiated it all and they supported you they supported me. Now, later, when I went to Harvard uh, for my uh, fellowship and to Mass General for my internship in residency, they wouldn't let me do things as a senior resident there that I did as a medical student at Baylor, you know. So it's a whole different hierarchical system there. So it was really a blessing to have grown up and gone to medical school in Texas. They would never have let me do this work, um, you know, as a medical student there. But anyway, they did. And so that really... So um, it also was my first experience that when you're doing something that's really disruptive, it's, um, it's, there's a lot of pushback. You know, people say, well, you know, how do you know they wouldn't have gotten better anyway? You didn't have a randomized control group for comparison. I said, well, strictly speaking, that's true, but have you ever had any patients where their chest pain went away completely and the blood flow to their heart improved and so on? Well, no, but that's beside the point, you know. So I uh, went back to school, finished my MD, then did a second randomized trial, also about a month long, which confirmed the results of the, the earlier one. 
We published that in the Journal of the American Medical Association, went to Boston to do my fellowship in medical residency, and then moved to San Francisco and became a professor at the University of California, San Francisco, and started the nonprofit Preventive Medicine Research Institute. And we did the most definitive study called the Lifestyle Heart Trial, where we showed for the first time that the blockages in the arteries could actually become less clogged after one year and even less clogged after five years. Whereas the randomized control group who were doing you know, what their doctors told them, you know, less red meat, more fish and chicken, you know, Mediterranean diet kind of thing, their arteries got more clogged after one year and even more clogged after five years. So then later I began doing a series of studies with other conditions uh, and we found that these same lifestyle changes had a, a really far reaching and powerful impact that um, helps redefine what's possible. And that's one of the reasons that I've spent so much of my 40 years, you know, 44 years now doing research is that, you know, properly done with the, you know, most well-respected collaborators and published in the leading peer-reviewed journals can help to redefine what's possible. And by doing so, at this point, can give literally millions of people new hope and new choices that they didn't have before. And to me, you know, I felt like I've been living on borrowed time since I decided not to commit suicide when I was in, in college. And so it's given me the kind of freedom to try things that I might not have ever tried. It's like, what's the worst that could happen? I'll learn something, you know. And when people are on their deathbeds, they generally don't regret what they did. They generally regret what they didn't do. Because if you do something, it turns out to be a mistake. Then you learn something really powerful from that. There's a lot of wisdom that comes from making mistakes and learning from them. And so when I decided not to kill myself, you know, many years ago, I said, I, I'm, I just, I don't really know what's real. I don't know what's true. I'm going to try. If it's not going to create permanent damage for me or hurt other people, I'm going to try as many different things as I can. It's going to be kind of a messy life. I need to really understand what's real from my own experience. And so there's a lot of wisdom that comes from doing that. And it's given me a lot of courage to try things that I wouldn't have tried before because, like, what's the worst that can happen? You know, it doesn't work. You learn something. But the paradox is when you can approach things with that state of mind, they're much more likely to work than if you feel like they have to work, And which is why um, I got so depressed earlier and, and, uh, when I really felt like I had to do well in order to get into medical school so that people would love and respect me. You know, I realized that the more I worried about things, the harder it became to do. And the harder it became to do, the more I worried and kind of got on this downward spiral. But the more inwardly defined I became, um, paradoxically, the more successful I became. You know, it's, um, you know, these are more than just stress management techniques. The ancient swamis and for that matter, rabbis and priests and monks and nuns didn't discover meditation and so on to unclog their arteries or perform better in sports or do better in school. It can certainly help you do all those things. But they're really powerful tools for transformation, for quieting down our mind and body enough to experience more of an inner sense of peace and joy and well-being, and to realize that, with few exceptions, that's really our natural state, is to be peaceful and healthy and happy. And not being aware of that, we run after all these things that we, you know, our culture, you know, the entire advertising industry, for example, tells us, buy this thing or get this thing, then you'll be happy and healthy. And once you set up that view of the world, However, it turns out you generally feel bad because until you get whatever that is, usually more money, more power, more sex, more beauty, more accomplishment, whatever, until you get it, you're stressed. If someone else gets it and you don't, then you're really stressed and it makes you feel like we really do live in this very hostile, competitive, zero-sum game. The more you get, the less there is for me and all that. Um, but even if you get it, it's very seductive in the moment because it's like, ah, now I'm happy. It really seems like that's what brought you happiness. But invariably, it doesn't last. It's either now what? It's, you know, it's never enough. 
I'm sure, you know, everyone's had an experience where they thought, gosh, if I could just make $20,000 a year, that would do it, you know, and then you do. And it's like, well, maybe 50,000, you know, it's never quite enough. Or if it's not now what, it's often so what, big deal, it doesn't really provide that lasting sense of meaning. And so the cycle continues. So um, what I what I try to work with people when they're suffering to say, look, um, in what may be the ultimate irony is that not being mindful that we have all of that already, that in the process of running after all these things to get more health and happiness, we end up disturbing what we could have already if we just stop doing that. And to some people that may sound like, oh, I'm just parsing words and that's just semantics and so on. But the implications are really quite profound because if it's out there, if you have something that I need to be happy and healthy, then uh, then everyone who has what I think I need has power over me to make me healthy or happy. But if it's already there and the question is just not for how can I get what I think I need, but how can I stop disturbing what I already have, I can do something about that. That's actually a very empowering realization, not to blame, but to empower, <clears throat> but to empower myself, because then I can actually do something about that. And then uh, the suffering also shifts to become a doorway for transforming our lives rather than something just to be avoided. I, I really would love to know what happened. You know, we have this Jim Nornish today or, or 20, 20, 30 years ago, but then there was this Jim who was depressed. How did it happen as an aha experience you suddenly had a shift and, and chose life and started exploring uh, overnight. The idea, you know, um, Eckhart Tolle is talking, talk, talk, uh, telling his story. He had this high experience and actually fainted and then came to consciousness and, and changed his life. So was it for you at least like some time transition period or, or you really had the realization why don't I give it a try to live and, and explore? How was it? Well, there's an old saying that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And that was certainly true for me. So this was in January of 1973, you know, a long time ago, almost 50 years ago. And uh, I was 19 at the time, and or 18 at the time, I guess. And um, I, uh, I was at Rice University in Houston, where half the student body graduated first or second in their high school class. Um, and my college roommate was one of the four people that year who scored a perfect score on his SATs, his college boards, and my organic chemistry professor, and I really wanted to be a doctor, and it turned out organic chemistry was the most important course to determine whether or not you got accepted to a medical school, even though it has nothing to do with it, anything you'll ever need to do as a doctor, um, but it's a weed-out course. And I began to worry that I wasn't going to do well. And the more I worried, the harder it became to study, and the harder it became to study, the more I worried. And it got to a point where I couldn't sleep for a week straight, and um, that that alone is enough to make you crazy. And I couldn't read a headline in a newspaper and tell you a minute later what it said. Um, and, uh, and then I thought, you know, why don't I just kill myself? You know, because dead people look like they're peaceful. And I was so agitated, I couldn't even sit down. And so I made plans to do that. I thought, you know, I'm stupid. I somehow managed to fool the admissions committee into thinking that I was smart. And now that I'm in a school with a bunch of really smart kids, it's just a matter of time before they realize what a mistake they led, made in letting me in. And I'll never fulfill my life dreams. And so let's just, you know, get it over with. You know, we're all going to die anyway. Let's just, you know, let's just skip the pain. And I was all set to do that, but I ran myself so ragged that 
I uh, um, got a really bad case of infectious mononucleosis. It was my first ex experience of how the mind really does affect the body in a negative way. And I got so sick that I literally couldn't roll over in bed. Uh, and by that time, my parents realized what a mess I was. They came down and saw what a mess I was. And I went home to Dallas. And the crazy idea I had I was to um, try to recuperate and get strong enough to go out and kill myself again. Meanwhile, my older sister had been a child of the 60s. And uh, there's an ecumenical spiritual teacher named Swami Satchidananda who really helped turn her life around for the better. Um, and so he came to Dallas one day to give a lecture and my parents decided they would have a cocktail party for him, you know, which was kind of a, I mean, today that would be weird in Dallas, but in 1973, it was really weird to have a Swami come into your house and have a cocktail party for him. So in walks this central casting idea of what a Swami should look like, you know, long saffron robes and long white beard and so on. And he came in our, in our living room and he gave a lecture and he started off by saying, nothing can bring you lasting happiness, which I'd already figured out, which is part of why I was ready to, to kill myself. But then I thought, well, he's kind of looks happy and glowing and I'm ready to do myself in. What am I missing here? And he went on to say what, you know, may sound to some people like a new age cliche, but it turned my life around, which is that nothing can bring lasting happiness. But that's the bad news. But the other side of the equation is that you don't need anything. We have our happiness already. We have our health already until we disturb it. And again, and what may be the ultimate, ultimate irony is that not being mindful of that, we end up running after, oh, if I only had this, or if only I had that, or if I didn't have this, then I'd be happy, then people would love me, then I wouldn't feel so lonely. And so he said, you know, again, the goal of all these spiritual practices is not that they bring you something you don't already have, but they help you temporarily at least <clears throat> quiet down your mind and body so you can experience what's already there. So I thought, okay, let me, I'll move killing myself down to plan B. Let me try this weird stuff. And um, and sure enough, I stopped eating my, tipping. I grew up in Texas eating, you know, meat five or six times a day, chilies, cheeseburgers, chalupas, whatever. And so I ate a vegetarian diet. I began to meditate to the extent that I could. I, I had to meditate while walking around. I was so agitated. Uh, I began to exercise some. And, and I began to get glimpses of what it meant to feel peaceful. And he said it's important when you have those experiences of feeling more peaceful after meditating, for example, to remind yourself, literally, to remind yourself that the meditation didn't bring you that sense of peace, but rather it was there already. But at least in the moment, you were able to quiet down, to stop disturbing what was there already. And so the paradox is that when I really felt like I had to do well in school so I could get into medical school so then people would love and respect me, I couldn't function at all. When I became more inwardly defined, I went back to school, you know, graduated first in my class, gave the commencement address. And I say that not to brag, but to say I experienced both ends of that spectrum. On one, I felt total darkness and despair and stupid and like an imposter and a fraud. And the other was I was able to function at a very high level. And the, the, again, the irony or the paradox was the more inwardly defined I was, the more I could function at a high level without the anxiety and stress that I'd brought along with me. So later when I went to medical school, I realized that, you know, change is hard. But if you're in a um, enough pain, then the idea of change becomes more appealing. And especially if someone's done a research study that has credibility that says, if you're willing to make these changes, there's a good chance that your pain, not only your physical pain of your heart disease, but your emotional pain, your depression and so on, is likely to improve. We have data now on well over 15,000 people and their depression scores go down by half. Uh, and we're not even focusing on depression as such, but it's kind of almost like a byproduct. This is better than you get with antidepressants. And so, 
by it's an opportunity that I wasn't really trained uh, to take advantage of as a doctor, that when someone's hurting, there's an opportunity for change and transformation because change is hard. But if you're hurting enough, then it's like, well, that's kind of weird stuff. But okay, it's been proven in science. Let me give this weird stuff a try. I'm hurting so bad, I'm willing to try anything. And then when they try it, because these biological mechanisms that affect our health are so dynamic, most people feel so much better so quickly then it reframes the reason for making these changes from fear of dying to joy of living, you know, joy and pleasure and love and feeling good. And they'll often say things like, you know, having a heart attack was the best thing that ever happened to me. And the first time someone told me that, I said, what are you nuts? They said, like, how could that be a good thing? They said, well, look, I never would have gotten interested in these things had I not gone through that. And you were there at the right time when I was hurting so badly and said, hey, why don't you try this? And I did, and I got so much better that I never, and my, you know, not only is my heart better, but my life is better. You know, not only is my heart more open, I'm more open. My relationships with my family and with my friends and loved ones are more open and intimate. I'm, you know, rediscovering inner sources of peace and joy and well-being that I didn't know about before. You know, I, I um, can function at a much higher level without getting sick in the process. And had I not gone through that experience, I never would have had that. And so that's why I worked for 16 years to, with Medicare to see if we could get them to cover this program, because I've seen how transformative it can be, not just in terms of unclogging arteries, but in, you know, that your heart is more open in all these other ways as well. And uh, it's why I, you know, after 44 years, I'm as more passionate than ever about doing this because, you know, I feel like I've been on borrowed time, as I mentioned, since I decided not to kill myself, since I came so close to that. It's given me the freedom to to do things that people thought was crazy. I mean, everything we've done professionally, people thought was impossible. But to me, that's part of what makes it meaningful. You know, it's, uh, my teacher said, it's why they build temples on hills with lots of steps. So you appreciate it more when you get there. You know, any great adventure, you know, is, is hard. You know, that's what makes it meaningful. I mean, just being a parent is hard. You know, that's, if you say to someone, was that, was that hard to be a parent? You say, oh yeah, it was the hardest thing I ever did. Well, would you do it again? Well, of course, you know, well, why if it's so hard? Because it's so meaningful, you know, and it's just because something is hard uh, doesn't mean that people shouldn't do it. It just makes it more meaningful when you do. What a gift you gave to me and to all my listeners telling your personal story. I really, really appreciate it. And Thank it's you. a very powerful story. I, I, you know, I read fully a couple of your books and looked through a couple of others. Uh, but I did not read your personal story in any of the books. Did you write it somewhere? Oh, yeah, in the uh, Love and Survival book and in the uh, Dr. Dean Ornish's Reversing Heart Disease book. It's chapter three of one book and chapter five of the other. Uh, the story is in there. I'm not, it means I'm not very attentive. <laughs> it's okay. Love and Survival, I, I read, I think, when it just came out. It's yeah, that was, it came out, the, the Reversing Heart Disease book came out in 1990, and the... Uh, Love and Survival book came out in 1998. That was a long time ago. But the Undo It book just came out today in paperback, and it's the most up-to-date version. So if anyone's really interested in learning about, more about our work, go there, go to, or, or get the book, or go to Ornish.com, and you can learn more about how Medicare is now covering my reversing heart disease program when done by Zoom. So you can live anywhere in the country, and uh, Medicare will pay for it, which is a real game changer. I'm looking at the table of contents uh, of of your undo book and you know it says eat well uh stress less love more and more. I'm, I'm again i'm thinking about uh my listeners and some when you say love more in this chapter 
some people are married and some people are happy and uh, have a lot of friends, but there are people who are lonely. You, do you have any suggestions? Well, yeah, as I, we talked about earlier, I think that loneliness and isolation and depression are the real pandemic in our culture. Uh, study after study has shown that people who feel that way are many times more likely to get sick and die prematurely compared to those who have a sense of love and connection and community. And the COVID-19 pandemic is only worse than that for many people because people are you know, afraid to go out. But you don't have to be in person, these studies show. They're just a phone call, a, a Skype call, a Zoom call, like we're, what we're doing today, works almost as well. I mean, we've been doing our whole program by Zoom. You know, we had we were meeting with people in person two or three times a week. And then when COVID hit, we couldn't do that anymore because, you know, these are vulnerable populations. So if anything good came out of COVID, it was learning that we could do it by Zoom or Skype as well as by uh, doing it in person. I, I never would have done that had we not been forced to. So that was one of the good things that came out of it. And now that we have, now that we've shown that we can do that, then as I mentioned, Medicare just last month agreed to cover my program when it's done by Zoom, which is wonderful. So now we can reach people wherever they live and they can do it in the comfort of their own homes. But you can also use the same technologies to reach out and touch someone. You know, you can, it doesn't matter if it's an in-person visit or not, just, it's really just the idea that someone cares about you. Anything that brings us together is healing. You know, even the root of healing is to make whole. You know, yoga is from the Sanskrit to yoke, to unite, union. These are really old ideas that we're rediscovering, that <clears throat> anything that brings us together is healing, whether it's in person or done virtually. It's just the feeling that someone loves and cares about you. And so, you know, love is one of those words we don't use much in medicine. People say, love more? That sounds kind of weird. What is that all about, you know? I, I think I gave the first lecture at the American College of Cardiology's annual scientific sessions on love, you know, a scientific review of all the studies showing that, you know, anger tends to be the one emotion that greatly increases your risk of a heart attack, but love and, and uh, compassion and, and caring are actually decrease it. Um, again, it's a, you know, this goes all the way back to uh, Aldous Huxley's um, uh, you know, what is common among all the different spiritual practices, what you call the perennial philosophy, love, compassion, forgiveness, altruism, and so on, are what free us from our suffering. You know, if I'm angry at you, if my finger is pointing at you, I've got three fingers pointing back at me, it's, it's hurting me. You know, when Nelson Mandela was freed from prison after being jailed for 16 years and did his long walk to freedom, he was asked, do you hate your jailers? And he said, well, you know, they took away the best years of my life. But if I hate them, then I'm still in prison in my heart. And so what we also try to teach people is that when you can have compassion on yourself, then you can have compassion on others. And when you do, it frees you from the suffering. It doesn't condone or um, make it okay what they've done, but it frees you from the suffering that goes along with that sense of anger. And we're having this battle in our country now between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And the forces of darkness are all about uh, the other, you know, the other is being fundamentally different. You know, those Muslim, you know, terrorists or those black people, you know, or whatever. Um, and when you see something has been fundamentally different from you, it actually creates suffering and illness as opposed to when you see that on one level we're separate, you know, you're you and I, me, and we can enjoy those differences only when we also see that on another level we're all connected, that we're all a part of something larger that connects us. And all spiritual visions ultimately give people that direct experience of interconnectedness or what's sometimes called a non-dual experience, that on one level we're separate, on another level we're part of something that connects us all. It's a little like 
you know, in an old style movie theater, the light that goes through the projector through the film. And on the screen, you see all these great dramas, but you can go lost in them if you forget that it's all just the light behind that projector manifesting all these different names and forms. And so for me, it's really all about a spiritual journey, you know, that we're all on that journey together, whether we realize it or not. And when we can use those experiences of suffering as a catalyst or as a doorway for transforming our life, whether it's being diagnosed with heart disease or depression or Alzheimer's, whatever it happens to be, uh, we can find meaning in those experiences. And if they're meaningful, then they're sustainable. And also, when you make these lifestyle changes, most people feel so much better so quickly in ways that matter that it reframes the reason for making changes in diet and lifestyle from from fear of dying or deprivation or, gee, I can't eat or do everything I want, to joy and pleasure and love and feeling good because you feel so much better, whether you have heart disease or not, when you make these changes, that it really uh, can be transformative for people when they see that. Dr. Ornish, would you repeat now, how could, could people go on Zoom and join your program? Sure. If you go to our website, which is Ornish, my name, O-R-N-I-S-H dot com, there's information on there how, you know, just leave your email and we're in there. We'll send you information on how you can have our if you have heart disease or have a family member who does how you can get the program and Medicare and many other insurance companies will pay for it, even if it's done via Zoom. Uh, if you have Alzheimer's disease, separate from that, we're doing a, a clinical trial. We're in the last part of that. We're still recruiting the last few patients. And if you or someone has early Alzheimer's disease, also go to Ornish.com and you can find that information. And if you want more information on the program that we've been discussing, the paperback version of Undo It is now available uh, at much, you know, it's half the price of the hardcover. I, I went I went on, uh, on Amazon.com. Last time I went, I think... Two days ago, only hard copy was. Uh, yeah, today is the first day it's been available, January the 4th. Great, wonderful. It's also the same day that U.S. News announced that the Ornish diet is number one for heart health again for the 11th year. So it's an auspicious day. I have still a couple of minutes. I want to ask you one more question. I, I know, I'm sure that at the University of California in San Diego, they they know your program, they teach your program. But how... how how was your ideas received around the United States? How many universities, uh, medical schools teach your program? Well, when I first started doing this work 44 years ago, I was just a second year medical student. People thought it was just a crazy idea. But yeah. the nice thing about doing research and, and working with the, the leading and most authoritative collaborators in each of these fields, you know, when we did the studies on reversing heart disease, we worked with the top cardiologists in the country. When we did the studies on reversing prostate cancer, we worked with the chairs of urology at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York and at University of California, San Francisco, where I'm also a professor and so on. And we published them in the leading peer-reviewed journals, in the Journal of the AMA and the, the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine and American Journal of Cardiology and so on. That provides a level of credibility. And I used to think if we just did good research, that would be enough. But I realized that it's not enough to do good research. You also have to change reimbursement because we doctors do what we get trained to do, uh, what we get paid to do, and we get trained to do what we get paid to do. So I thought if we could get Medicare to cover this, most of the other insurance companies would, and then it would change medical practice and even medical education. And that took 16 years, but they finally, in 2010, did create a new benefit category to cover what they call the Ornish program for reversing, Dr. Ornish's program for reversing heart disease. Uh, and then just a month ago, they've now extended that so that anyone in the country uh, you can live in a rural area, you know, you can live in a food desert. It can help reduce 
produce health inequities and health disparities. So I've always wanted this to be something, I didn't want this just to be, you know, for affluent people, I wanted this, or concierge medicine, I wanted it to be for everybody. And now that we've changed reimbursement, we can make it available. And now that it's available via Zoom, then everyone who's eligible can benefit from it. And I've been collaborating with a group called ShareCare, uh, so we can have the infrastructure to uh, get this out as widely as, as possible. Dr. Ornish, I want to say something. You know, there is a Hebrew word, nega, which means affliction. And if you turn it upside down, it becomes oneg, which means blessing. <laughs> very often, uh, How do you spell that? Uh, nega, nun, gimel, ayin. Gimel, and what was the other one? Ayin. Or, it's ayin, nun, Vice versa. Yeah. yeah. So, so the, the affliction, your pain, your personal pain, your personal suffering when you were 19 became such a blessing to so many millions of people. And, and I am so grateful for your generosity of sharing your personal story and, and, and your work, which is incredible. It's, it's Thank you. Yeah, that's what I try to work with people to show how they can find meaning in their suffering. Because again, change is hard. But if you're hurting enough, then people often will be motivated to make changes that they wouldn't have made otherwise. And that's where the blessing comes from. That was certainly true for me. You know, if you take the word illness and write it out, I-L-L-N-E-S-S, and circle the first letter, the I, and you take the word wellness and write that out, and if you circle the first two letters, you go from I in illness to we in wellness. Uh, it's just another version of the same idea, that anything that brings us together is really healing. And so to me, awareness is always the first step in healing. And so, Peter, I really appreciate the chance to share this with your listeners, and I hope that it's been useful. Well, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. God bless you. Thank you. Bye. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, our time is coming to an end today. I hope you enjoyed this interview. I definitely did, and I uh, highly recommend that you read Dr. Ornish's book. Uh, I'm looking forward to having your attention next Tuesday at 2 o'clock at PRM. Peace to all who want to live in peace.